Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of The Young Guard. Apologies for our absence, uh, we've been gone for a few weeks now, however we are back. Uh, we'll be doing a regular fortnightly podcast, uh, we're going to be doing a few mini-series as well going forward, so hopefully you'll see a lot more of us. Please do subscribe to the channel if you're listening to us on YouTube. Uh, this episode is all about our defence of aristocracy. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. It's quite a long one, this one, um, but all of the content was really interesting, at least I thought so. Uh, so please do listen to it all. It'd be great to hear what you think in the comments section. Thank you very much. Aristocracy. I mean, it's quite a loaded term. Uh, it's defined in... It's used now, now basically, to, to, to define... Um, some hereditary uh, privileged family or p individual. Um, it's normally associated when we think about it. We think about the uh, French Revolution, don't we? We think about you know aristocrats being lined up, queuing um, towards the uh, um, uh, what was the, what was the name of the machine? Oh God, um, the guillotine. Guillotine. That's it. Uh, we, that's 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 the imagery that we have. Um, but in fact, arist aristocracy. I mean, the the idea has been around since ancient Greece. Um, and if, if you look at the word, like democracy, demos is the people, and uh, kratos is the is the power. Aristocracy means um, aristos means excellent. Um, it, it, the, the idea, the concept of the hereditary principle is actually not a defining part of what it what aristocracy meant in the original sense it's become to mean that in effect when people use it but in fact the original idea was the best the rule of the best was was the way that most people would have defined it back then and it was also not considered uh, synonymous with monarchy in fact monarchy was seen as a separate system of government that you would have one person in charge um, with a pure hereditary principle aristocracy was seen as the rule of the rule of the best the best qualified citizens um, so when I think it's best to, to consider when we talk when we use the term aristocracy in that in that guise rather than the very very um, distorted idea that it's purely just some some lords with uh, with a hereditary title it's a lot wider than that um, and um, really, aristocracy. So why would you want an aristocracy? What, why would you want it over another form of government? Well, I think I think the the basis of that, where you can start your reasoning for justifying an aristocracy, is the idea of hierarchy. Um, and I think this is a really interesting point because it kind of goes down the split of left and right here. Is that we live really in a society which um, promotes egalitarianism, so the idea that everyone is equal. I mean, um, as um, kind of the, it's kind of the, the, the cultural standard, isn't it? Everyone, everything must be egalitarian. But in reality, we have hierarchies everywhere. Every society has a hierarchy. Even the Soviet Union, which purported to try and remove any semblance of hierarchy, especially if it was done by capital, um, they had a hierarchy as well, because the people who tried to control the outcomes of everything, they were, they were the people on top. And if you believe, as, as Jordan Peterson has, has uh, articulately explained um, that hierarchy is natural. Um, it's actually biologically natural. It, it occurs um, in any human society. Then the discussion is, how do you order that hierarchy? What's the value of that hierarchy? Is it merit? Is it bloodline? Is it money? Um, is it um, political influence? So there's a, you basically have to come down, you have to create some sort of value 
how you're going to judge people's hierarchy and um, position in the hierarchy. Um, and so one of the things about aristocracy is that that's what it basically means. It basically means that there are people at the top who actually are in charge, who are given a certain amount of power and influence because of some, some sort of value or principle. Um, so um, it, is, it is the antithesis to the idea of egalitarianism. And I would say as a conservative, I think conservatives do not, at least they don't actively support the idea of egalitarianism because they're normally about preserving, um, uh, preserving some sort of social order. Um, I would say that's most most conservatives would agree. What do you guys think about that? I think it's true. I think we accept that you know there's been no there's been no civilization or barbarism in all of human history which hasn't had a hierarchy. There has been no truly egalitarian collective of human beings ever. So as you said, you know North, North Korea, East Germany, the Soviet Union. Uh, and then less extreme examples, modern-day Scandinavia, all of these places have had hierarchies. So it, this, it, it's a fundamental value of natural law v. utilitarianism and, and, and the right, not even just conservatives, but the whole of the political right buys into to natural law. And that's where the yes. base question is for the right. If, if these hierarchies do exist, they've existed in, in, in the Earth's evolution for upwards of 400 million years, how are we best yeah. going to serve that uh, serve society with our hierarchies? Absolutely, well, that, that's it. It's, it's about creating. It's, it's about protecting a system which can can um, itself protect certain values and certain principles, um, entitlements, or um, rights. Um, what it's about finding a system which best protects those. And a hierarchy has been proven, as you've said, since the dawn of time. That it's a, it's the it's the most effective way. In fact, it's been the only way. It's been the only way that we've been able to protect certain uh, certain values is by giving a certain class is again another loaded term, but a certain part of society a certain privilege or power um, for varying reasons, so that they are in a position to to ensure that those things are valued. Um, what's quite interesting is. People normally associate egalitarianism. Uh, they, they, well, they, they talk about egalitarianism, but they would also say that, um, that they're, um, um, they believe in meritocracy too. And in fact, the, the, the two are actually quite dissimilar. Um, I would say they're mutually the problem, exclusive. Well, I think so too. Um, I, I, I felt um, slightly hesitant in making that distinction in, <laughs> in case someone would disagree with me. But um, I think they are. In fact, it's quite funny how, because the problem again with meritocracy is that you are deciding that certain people will have certain in, more influence than others. And we would we would agree that we would want our, if, for example, in England, we would want our, the minister, uh, our ministers, our members of parliament to be the best of we want the best people naturally to to be the people who run the country i think it, it's it just it's a it, it just it's a corollary of 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 um of government that you would want the best people in in place so they can make the best decisions to make the best decisions in interest of the country um so that is not egalitarian um at all um people can talk about egalitarianism in terms of civil rights but that's not really what we're talking about here um, and uh, what's quite interesting, in addition to that, is that uh, really there's been a cultural shift. So the idea of egalitarianism would have been, you know, kind of <laughs> was very much looked down upon, um, even in countries which purported like France and the US to have removed um, hierarchies, in, in both cases a monarchy. They, although they've defined themselves as being, you know, equal, so, uh, you know, egalitarian, um, egalitarian, 
etc. Fraternité, Fraternité yeah. um, Equalité, or whatever it was. Um, the, the French actually have a long history of arist- of of hierarchies before and after the um, French uh, Revolution. Um, before they obviously had this very tightly knit. Um, aristocracy of kind of blue bloods and if you weren't part of the aristocracy then you were you know you were no one in terms of political power and they also had the church which were incredibly strong too you know they were the hierarchies of the of the french monarchy Mm. and then after when they got overthrown actually a lot of those families that didn't get killed they had still major influence as private citizens the social hierarchy of the country didn't change that much in terms of who was in charge while they weren't seen as they weren't they didn't have hereditary peerages in in, using an english term they were still Mm. they were still very influential they would have Um, lost their titles though wouldn't they exactly and and they wouldn't have had any rights yes yeah absolutely um so they wouldn't have had that so one of the reasons that we actually sort of kept our aristocracy and our, our monarchy even going back to the french revolution was we could sort of look across the channel and just see everything that came with sort of the horrors of the french revolution and getting rid of their 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 king their you know all of the aristocracy layers that they had they just got rid of them in one fell swoop and that's sort of the reason why we kept ours because we actually said actually rather than just killing everybody we actually quite like you know, we saw the benefits of having a king and an aristocracy, whereas now, actually, there isn't anything going on like that. And there's still quite a lot of talk with, uh, with, with you know, Queen, Queen Elizabeth's ageing and, and uh, you know, the, the rise of, of far leftism in politics as to why we actually need an aristocracy. What practical application can it have in in you know in in the government and you know today's application um and uh, you know it's it's just something that now actually is really crucial that we do justify it to people more so than ever just because we don't have the ability to navel gaze really at a country right now that's going through what the french revolution did for us to 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 compare yeah i i I think this is one of the things that people don't understand when they talk about aristocratic regimes at all. There's this notion that you can create a country without an aristocracy, and I think that's one of the one of the biggest fundamental lies of our time. I think if you were to say that the United States or France doesn't have a merit, uh, sorry, doesn't have a meritocracy, doesn't have an aristocracy, would be uh, a- absolute rubbish. So it's all about, like I say, you know. Trying to figure out what sort of aristocracy you want. Now, you know I have a a, a good level of respect for the the sort of landed de- de- uh, gentry. I like the uh, hereditary peerages and all those sorts of things. But the Americans still have um, an aristocracy. They have basically until Donald Trump, they had the same five or six families continuously uh, yes. getting the presidency. Uh, they've got this sort of. Yep. Uh, multi-billionaire capitalist culture um, even even celebrity you know this disgusting celebrity culture where people can apparently act well therefore they know how to solve all of the problems of the nation Um, Mm -hmm. people you can just take away the aristocracy as the French did and they sort of proved that on the founding of the republic right you can't just kill all the aristocrats and go well that's that done with the void will be filled mm. absolutely I, I think that's a really good point it's very important i think um that and that's why we kind of it was important for us to talk about 
what we actually mean by aristocracy. Because I think when people look at it in this way, they'll actually be quite um, uh, uh, revelatory to them. Because again, America actually, I would suggest America has a stronger aristocracy than the, the England has now. I agree. Um, and it has it has in tradition. You know, the, the people think that just because you're a democracy that um, you also you don't, you can't have an aristocracy. In fact, the the WASPs, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants of America, had a very very strong sense of aristocracy of public service um and it came a lot to do with their religious heritage there was this sense of um public duty that they had to be charitable to people and and as we've seen we've seen um i would suggest trump is an aristocrat actually i would say that he is part of that american aristocracy i would say clinton uh, hillary clinton the clintons are are an aristocratic family as are mm. as were the kennedys oh, as yes. was Bu- uh, the bush the bush family they're all very very strongly um tightly knit um more some with more um sense of uh, duty than others i think the kennedys had a, a very much a stronger sense of public duty and that's why so many of them went into public office the bushes on the other hand i don't think they have any sense of public duty I, as as well as the clintons i think the the american aristocracy has less of a specific value of public service than it did but it definitely up, up until kind of the mid 20th century there was very much a strong what was white the white anglo-saxon um protestants they all went to uh they all went to um, ivy league universities they went to the same sort of boarding schools as as you would have seen with public schools in oxbridge in in the uk they had they actually had very a very similar um elite or aristocracy um to the uk um in fact what's quite interesting is that people used to talk about aristocracy as just a natural thing as conservatives would see it you know so the idea was not um that the aristocracy was kind of this um uh you know old um stuffy institution or or group but they were actually it was just a natural state of affairs for 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 societies to have them in fact Mm -hmm. um as the wasp sort of aristocracy in the states started to to kind of subside and it became more of a money-based aristocracy um, James uh, James B. Conant, he he was the president of Harvard, and this is the days when the Ivy League was very very influential. It still is, obviously, but it's um, more so back then. Um, he actually they were actually talking in the fifties and sixties about redefining what arist- the aristocracy of of, mm. of of the U.S. and they actually thought that meritocracy was going to be the new way of judging the uh, was the new principle of hierarchy mm. so that would be what would what defined the aristocracy so while the uk in the 50s and 60s was moving away from the idea of aristocracy um we we were mo- move, moving into egalitarianism everywhere we were getting rid of grammar schools right now that's a really a good good mark in the uk you know when we started removing grammar schools you could tell that we were moving into a, an egalitarian era the U.S. has actually gone the other way. The U.S. doesn't have this kind of streak of egalitarianism. They're actually still a very hierarchical society, and they definitely still have an aristocracy. I think it's harder to define that, but they've always had a traditional sense of aristocracy. So we look, we look at those three examples, the U.K., France, and the U.S., and we can see how aristocracies have been defined in different ways and how egalitarianism has also approached um, their, their hierarchies in different ways. And it's very, very interesting, I think, for, for, for listeners maybe to see to see the term in a different light rather than just is it a hereditary peer or not mm. i mean it seems to me that there's always going to be sort of an aristocracy whether that be through the meritocratic system or whether it be a government or sort of public sort of appointment of uh, an aristocracy 
but just moving back yeah. to the to the UK, I think we've really got to look at how we are defining sort of our aristocracy. Um, yes. And just with our defence, because we're, once we know what we've got to defend, we can defend it. And, it, you know, so so we're looking at, some might define it as the middle class, whatever that is. Um, good, you know, families with a class. reputable, yeah, upper class, families with like a reputable name that go to the top tier of universities, good jobs. Um, or you can look at it this way, um, state-sponsored aristocracy, sort of uh, uh, like the houses of lords and everything built up around that and the civil service that goes up around that now when we say we've got to defend it i don't know about you two but uh sort of where it rests on meritocracy i don't even think i don't think there's anything anybody can do about that even if there is something somebody wanted to do to sort of deface or depose that sort of meritocratic built aristocracy because you're always going to get sort of talent coming through and then like you say the the hereditary sort of uh you know cream of the crop is sort of hereditary so uh, you know that's that's a forever revolving circle that's going to just keep going through time but it's sort of it, it's got to focus on the house of lords really because because that's sort of the only thing that our state sponsors, and it's the, one of the main things that we're seeing a lot of people starting to combat now. Mm. I, I actually don't like, within the English system, I actually don't like the notion of meritocracy creeping its way into our aristocracy. And the reason why is this, because the way that we tend to measure people on a meritocratic basis is largely based on capitalist principles, and that means money. Okay, or and who, the who ability, has the most value? Yeah, uh, the ability, the ability to generate money is not the same thing as as who is best placed to make, uh, you know, high ranking decisions for the nation, who looks out for the nation, and who 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 owes themselves to the nation and the crown. You know, a, a large chunk of our of our aristocracy was generated in the Middle Ages by um military service to the crown that's how that's, a lot of yeah. that's how a lot of uh, peerages were rewarded in this country and so they began their life uh, their aristocratic life uh, in great service to the crown and to the nation and you can see that moving forward over the centuries that a lot of the way they've acted has been based on national interest has been based on the crown's interest um not money not this sort of you know I, we even talk about you know aristocrats in england even talk about money as this sort of dirty thing that traders do yes. you know a lot of americans when they came over in britain's height of empire uh, and before that in the 17th 18th centuries when a lot of jewish financiers entered britain it didn't matter how rich they got it didn't matter how much they attempted to emulate uh aristocrats they were never so given peerages club. yeah they were never mm, given peerages yes. and they were never allowed to and the reason why was simple your money is not what allows you to rule the nation and that's something i feel we've yeah. lost and and it's because of the american meritocratic principle now yes for the, totally for, the for the sort of the plebiscite for the rest of us 
meritocracy is a dream, but to say meritocracy all the way up to president or to an aristocracy, I, to me, it's always been a pipe dream, right? Like, I, I love how Americans sell this notion, but it's not really real. Almost nobody makes it to this, okay? We have a country of, what, 65 million people, maybe a thousand tops are in those sorts of positions. So I, I find it, and, and they don't have a lot of power when they get there, right? So I find it a bit of a nonsense. I would, I see much, I see much greater value in a, in allowing them to fulfil their ancestral duties uh, than trying to squash them out of existence in the name of meritocracy or egalitarianism. But it's a pretty hard uh, point to defend, though, isn't it? Where you say that you have a a hereditary sort of position and the only justification that you have to that is public service to the crown sort of hundreds and hundreds of years back well i i would say that um as as we talked about earlier the i the, the point is um you, if hier hierarchies are inevitable then how do we what values do we encapsulate in that hierarchy what do we use as the metric for that hierarchy as wellington has said um it's in the American hierarchical system, really now, it's about money. The problem with money is that money gives no immediate sense of charity or a sense of public duty or service. So it has no sort of accountability to anyone. And I think that's one of the problems we have nowadays is how capitalism, it can become unaccountable. There's no sense of control about it because it's individuals who have accumulated wealth and they can spend it as they like. And there's no inherent inherent social responsibility. I think corporations are are similar to that. Um, we've seen this a mass of wealth and people feel that there's no social um, social contract with those corporations and those aristocrats, those directors. Mm. So the, the discussion is what what would be a better way? And I would suggest that the British, or specifically or the, really the English aristocracy, the brilliance of that system was because you knew exactly, as you said, it's hard to justify having a system with hereditary privilege. The whole system was based on the on the point that, of course, it's, of course it's unjust, and that's the whole point. So what you do is you create a class that evolved over hundreds of years that understood that they had privilege and the whole their whole existence was based on the fact of ensuring that they were giving back that they were in it, they were ensuring the safety of their um not to be too feudalistic but their their the the kind of people on their land they they had a social responsibility to everyone around them because they had all that wealth um of course that's not to say that some aristocrats were very poor in this regard but that was the general idea and there was a general consensus for many hundreds of years that that was what an aristocrat was in england anyway and this really developed an idea of what we would consider now english the english gentleman you know those those concepts are the idea of you know cour courteousness or um you know fair play um being um public duty and service um, a, a respect for exactly loyalty um and also not particularly cat uh, really not about money in fact many mm. aristocrats were very very poor and in fact up into the 1930s well uh, in the 1930s and 40s as more aristocrats started moving in towards the banking system and accumulating lots of money it was it was frowned upon in the same way as as um Wellington said about jewish bankers that came to the uk it wasn't because they were Jewish that they were kind of um, dismissed. It was because they came from a value system that's very different. They saw everything, money as power. Well, the whole aristocracy, the whole point was that you, to a degree, you were actually abnegating that. 
money was not the key thing. It was the social responsibility you had mm. as the aristocrat of that area. Um, and that whole kind of sense of public duty, people were instilled with those values from a very young age and they went to the, the, the schools, the public schools and, and the universities that at time also encapsulated those values. So I think the kind of sense of noblesse oblige that was created in England over those 300, 400 years meant that we had a system of government that worked very effectively. So we had these kind of, we had the, the commons, which actually was full of aristocrats or sons of aristocrats, yes. not official aristocrats, but people from, this fam- from the families of those aristocrats. Yet and then to you inherit baronet sons. Yeah, <laughs> yet to inherit. To be honest, it's exactly the same as we have now, because now we have um, ministers and, and MPs who go into the House of Commons, they spend 20 years there, or in some of them a couple of years, and they become lords. You know, mm. the, the exact same system still exists. It's just now it's the political parties that decide it rather than the hereditary principle, which actually brings up another point. The fantastic thing about the hereditary principle is that they are not accountable in the same way. It's not a democratic mandate or a political party that provides their mandate. They have a separate mandate. They they are, just like the, the monarch is still, they have an independent mandate so they can act as individuals and if they're instilled with those values they can do things for the national interest mm. rather than doing it because of money or political gain or any machiavellian principle yeah i, I think one of the things that to, to to point out about this as well one of the things i really like about the hereditary peerage system in uh in england is that uh, actually it's the only electable way of getting into the house of lords like nobody knows this but Life peerages and all the rest of it are elected in this ridiculous system we've got now since the uh, since the Reformation in the Lords, uh, where they're just sort of stuffed in constantly by prime ministers, and they've made them all horrifically London focused. Beforehand, if a seat opened up in the Lords and there was a hereditary peer slot, then all the peers across the land could apply to join to the Lords, and the and, and there would be oh, committees like and councils who would elect in a Lord. So you, if you were badly behaved as a Lord, you would be punished away from real power, you'd be punished away from being close to the monarch, at least in a political way. You might be able to achieve it through personal means. And actually, like we've lost that. Uh, it's another way Absolutely. that we can't have the checks and balances for the Lords anymore, and I find that quite sad. So does a system like that not exist now? How, how has that changed? No, no, no. It's been completely removed uh, in in nineteen nine, I think it was, by Tony Blair, on the basis oh, that yeah. most of these hereditary peerages were Tory. Now, of course, they were Tory because the Conservative Party is one of the oldest political parties on the planet, right? <laughs> and 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 yeah. Labour is not. Uh, it's why the Liberal Democrats have got a, a disproportionate number of peers, right? Um, so now it's just a free-for-all. Any Prime Minister yeah. can basically appoint as many peers um, as they please. And we've now got a House of Lords at 800 and something yeah. peers. It's, uh, it's insane. They, they've they, they've pre- predicted that uh, 20 years from now there's going to be a thousand Lords. Mm. A, a thousand. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't actually know that a system like that existed that actually sounds much more like a uh, me being the pleb I am, uh, a meritocratic <laughs> way of getting that, that higher tier. I mean, I like the higher tier, and one of the reasons I defend the House of Lords is because if Corbyn was in tomorrow, the House of Lords theoretically would be, be the, <laughs> the last bastion of hope against socialism sort of well, engulfing our country. Well, I don't think I don't think I think the Queen would be, to be honest, because I think the I House think... of Lords can just be ping ponged and steam steam rolled over. Well, the Queen mm-hmm. actually has a is actually a check a check on that. I don't, I don't know if she'd do it, but uh, anyway, so... not to get diverted. But I think it's um it's 
you know, that's a really good example um, at the kind of geographic factor. When you had these peers and who owned a large amount of land, they had that social responsibility to the area that they were in, not in charge of. They weren't in charge, but that they were responsible for, that they were the accountable to the... They were custodians, they were stewards of those areas. There, there was a much better geographical representation of those areas. Because um, uh, actually one of the problems we have at the moment, as Wellington said, is that we, it's all incredibly London-centric. And it's all very, very focused on one class. Now, you might say, well, they were all aristocrats. But actually, the aristocrats, they didn't have this sort of, um, I don't think so, that they had some sort of um, class agenda in the same sense that we would think many kind of the London centric, because now the House of Lords is effectively just a Remainer stronghold. I know it's, it's very, probably actually very conservative, class. just to keep it going, keep the country going as as well, it is, well. because it's it's one in which they thrive. But if 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 people can thrive in it, the whole country can thrive. The people can thrive. Um, so well, that's exactly why. You know, it's just one yeah. of the reasons I would defend it. So I, I think that the, the problem that the problem we have at the moment is the House of Lords is at one part is 80, 80 or so are hereditary, which is a minute part, but the rest of them are pretty much appointees of of the political parties in charge. And okay. so the whole point of a check and balance that you would want in a in a in a in a in a strong uh, successful parliamentary democracy. Not to say that ours isn't a successful one, in, with the current system, but it's not as it's not as efficient as it should be because the political parties can easily control both houses. Um, it's, yep. it's a bit like the US. And, and actually, if you want to, if you if you weren't going to be consistent, you have to go over both ways, right? You have to go fully kind of, you know, um, American Republic style or French Republic style, or you go. Um, uh, you you go down the the route of okay we're going to have a separate check che- we're going to have a separate um, house which has a different mandate not necessarily a democratic one which is independent of the political parties which can yeah. actually do things in a different way because that's what the house of lords provided in the past is they were very much the stewards as was the monarch they were the stewards of the political constitution they were very much they safeguarded all the reasons why, you know, for example, when the people's vote in 1911 and um, the the great reform bill in 1830 is that they were they thought they were protecting the insti- they were protecting the institutions, and of course that caused friction because you do get this conflicting mandate of democracy against aristocracy, and people naturally, I think most people would now go the democracy obviously trumps aristocracy, but I think that's because we haven't made an argument. The concept of aristocracy, as we've been talking about, hasn't really been defended. And if there was one place for it to be defended, it would be in a constitutional monarchy like ours. Because I think when you don't make the argument for for, for hereditary peers, then it's hard to make the argument for the monarchy as well. Mm. I would agree with that. I think I think I actually think this this our, our House of Lords is the first example of this despicable leftist politics of using of using blown out language and a sensationalism and and sort of uh and linguistical tricks and deceit of getting of getting what you want the the downfall of our of our modern day house of lords started right the way back at the start of the 20th century with lloyd george running a horrendous campaign against the house of lords calling them 
uh, a group of unemployed nobodies, and this is when the Whigs and the, or the Liberals, sorry, and the, well, actually, it was right first time. <laughs> you know, the Liberals and the Conservatives both sort of thought unemployment, you know, unemployed people were there of their own accord, and it was a bit grotesque. You know, very vicious language at the time. Um, and uh, sought to destroy the House of Lords from the inside out. There were actually protests, I think, at the nine at the end of the nineteenth century to get rid of hereditary peers. Even then, this was because of the Lords misbehaving. Though you see, there was an awful lot. This is this is the failure in the system that we've had, and this is why I get quite angry because just because the Lords have behaved badly in the past. And they have done yes. the height of our power. It doesn't mean the institution is wrong. Um, the downfall of this started when the Lords themselves were becoming extremely opulent, more interested in throwing parties than holding on to their duty in that sort of mm. horrible Edwardian time where nobody cared about tomorrow um, and all the money was thrown away. They all got themselves in massive debts. Ten years later, of course, World War One. Uh, where the aristocracy very famously led from the front, uh, which is a big yeah. problem in World War One because it ended up killing most of them. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> so we've literally yeah. wiped our aristocracy out physically. I think that's a really good point because I think the, I think people generally don't know how much the First World War affected the social structure of the UK. Mm. Um, it really decimated, more than decimated. It was it, it destroyed so much of those people who had been who were the next leaders of this country. Agreed. So many of them were killed in that era. And I think it's never really recovered since then. Not Churchill. So then. I think that, well, yes. <laughs> but, but it's, it's fact that someone like Churchill, he was an aristocrat. There's no doubt about it. He oh, was yes. the grandson of a duke, you know. But people don't think about it in that way. But um, he's an example of the aristocratic system working. And it's, it continues to work. David Cameron very much... Eton, Oxford educated. Let's look at the, look look at the leaders that the UK the UK has produced. Uh, whether you like them or not is another question. But look at the mm. people who've managed to become prime minister. You're looking at Tony Blair, for example. He was very much an aristocrat um, in terms of his background. Um, Thatcher was not. She was she was a middle class really kind of lower middle class person as was gordon brown and john major but the aristocracy still does exist in this country it's just that they don't they don't like to tell people that they're aristocrats mm. you know the institutions still have a massive <laughs> massive strong grapple um uh that the actually the great thing about the uk is that we because we never had a revolution those institutions still exist and they still produce people but yes. i think funny enough um i've got something which is quite interesting is that um uh what the, what is the aristocracy of today? So we mm. don't have in the UK. We don't have an arist aristocracy of the old. There are still remnants of it, but that idea of public duty doesn't really exist. There are people like Jacob Rees-Mogg. I think one of the reasons why Jacob Rees-Mogg is so popular because he does actually, even though he's not really an aristocrat in the traditional sense, um, is that he actually encapsulates those values. He, he's almost like he, he actually does encapsulate it all into one person in a way. The way he dresses, the way he talks, he wasn't the values he though. has. Well, technically, yes, it was uh, Lord Lord Rees-Mogg, but he wasn't hereditary. It was a life peerage. Mm. I'm really kind of, yeah, I kind of mean the hereditary side of things. No. You know, those families that have been for hundreds of years. But he, he does actually encapsulate all those values. And I think that's why people like him. But the current class we have, that the, the aristocracy we currently have is the... It's the media, big business, and big politics of today, encapsulated by people like Hillary Clinton. Mm. You know, these people are the new aristocracy. The, the values of this this current social 
the current social changes that we're seeing now of um, diversity, inclusion, equality, you know, um, equality of outcome as well as opportunity. Actually, I would argue is a new aristocracy starting to impose its will and impose its sense of morality. Yes. Um, that's, that's something I would suggest is going on. That's more of a, that's more of a suggestion, really. I thought about it a bit, but it's definitely something I've been thinking about since I've been researching about the concept of aristocracy. And I think we also see it in people like Emmanuel Macron. We see this again. We see this. Uh, we see this west-wide. Someone like Emmanuel Macron. He 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 went to the Ecole Nationale, which is the. It's kind of like the elite school for public servants. So in the, in France, they still have a very strong sense of what an, uh, of an aristocracy, just not in not in a hereditary sense. But he is a very good example. He was a he was a banker, investment banker, worked for all the private. He had massive networks in private in the private banking world. And um, he he's very much a very, he's a very very good example of of the French aristocracy still. Put, put, pulling its weight, um, flexing its muscles. Mm. And this, as I said, the same with Hillary Clinton. And I think in the UK, we still have those same people, the people like David Miliband, you know, those mm. types of people. He came from the Milibands again. His father was a, was a Marxist um, intellectual and he had Ed and David Miliband. Um, there were, uh, Ed, David Miliband working for mass charities um, in the States and he wafts over like an aristocrat. They have demeanors of an aristocrat, this, this kind of, they have all the negative aspects of aristocracy, not the good sense of an English gentleman or respectability in public service, but this kind of uh, overbearing sense that they can just wade into any conversation with this kind of self-confidence that's completely unjust, unjustified. Mm, and yep. the same with Ed Miliband. He, he, was, he, he became leader of the Labour Party and thankfully he didn't get in. Um, but <laughs> <tombstone>. again, <laughs> the aristocracy... So the, yes, exactly. But the, the, I think that's a really good example because it shows that the aristocracy nowadays isn't a right-wing thing. It's not a conservative thing. It's actually on both sides of the spectrum. So someone like Edmund Aband is a Marxist. But he, they very much come from an aristocratic background. You know, they, they went to, to, to Oxford to the same college, I believe. You know, that doesn't just happen. You know, that's because of the networks they had, the connections they had, um, and where they were in the social so, their social status in society. They managed to get in, and they became big in politics. One of them's working for a charity. That's the new aristocracy. I think it's a good example of the new aristocracy that we currently have. The Labour Party is swimming with people like that. You look Absolutely. at the Benz, yeah, yeah. Um, Kinnocks. Yeah, they're just yep. swimming with them, and and actually, it's probably one of the reasons why Labour actually are getting the reputation of being out of touch. Because as soon as you're a, a Labour MP, you're straight into this new aristocracy, and that's why probably in the vote for the last election, 2015, again, Conservatives made quite a lot of grounds in places where they really hadn't been very successful before. It's it's sort of flip sided, because it's expected that Conservatives should be more aristocratic or have respect for aristocracy and Labour shouldn't because of their, I quote, working class origins and backgrounds, sure. But they've they've been they've they've been lost gradually over time and people can see that now in the way that you have you have these families that act like like the American aristocrats do, but they do over over here too. I totally agree with you. And it's a good example of again 
do you want a system where people get rewarded in like a meritocratic system? Do you just basically want the sums of successful businessmen to be in charge with no sense of civil or, uh, or social responsibility to people around them because they don't consider that they've received that privilege, they've just acquired it? Or do you want a system where the inherent problem is actually turned into a plus where people know that they have a privilege that they give back as as a as a as a reason why they should continue the system and i think that's why there's a really strong argument for uh, the old english aristocracy the gentry of the past yeah. it did work i think it, i think it, i think that's sort of, yeah I, I i totally agree i think this sort of thing would even work well for 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 lefties you know like you part of the big problem we got at the moment on a more political ground is uh in the uk the us all over western europe is you've got these like frightfully middle class um children of wealthy parents who feel terribly guilty about the situation they're in and they're trying to do whatever they can to help people they don't know or understand in any way shape or form now obviously i don't think they're they're helping <laughs> yeah. them whatsoever but actually if you place upon them that same sort of guilt we're going to force you to be born into this uh landed class of people and you have to worry about you your family your tenants the land the nation your ancestors yeah. and not and not mucking up an estate that's existed for 500 years solid yeah. <laughs> I think you could probably and harness all, and channel that in a, in a more in a more productive manner. Well, absolutely, and and the institutions as well that encapsulate that, particularly the education system. I think if anything like this was to be reinstigated, this idea of public duty and service to the nation state, it would have to come from the education system. And the grammar school system was the same. It, it actually encapsulated the same sort of mentality as the public school system. It actually opened up the aristocratic values, because that's what it was, this kind of gentlemanly courtesy, um, honour, integrity, these kind of values were inculcated into generations of working class kids and they became aristocrats. People like Roy Jenkins, for example, um, who was the son of a Welsh miner, he became, he was incredibly aristocratic. He, he, he acquired an aristocratic accent and, and the values of that class. I think it's a really good point. And many, one of the fantastic... Um, uh, examples is this Clement Attlee. Clement Attlee was um, the aristocracy at the time when they were a Labour were elected. They didn't lose their their minds like we would if a Corbyn government got elected. They very much considered it as the continuum of the, the of the English constitution and the gentlemanly manner that had been created in the aristocratic classes, because pretty much all the leaders came from those classes, actually meant constitutionally that political debate was quite civil. And that's why we've never had a particularly fas strong fascist or communist movements in the UK, because the class where all the leaders came from and all the politics came from were very much of the same background and the same ideas and values. They'd gone through the same schools, the same universities. Well, nowadays we'd go, that's mm, that's mad. It's not egalitarian, no diversity, inclusion, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, constitutionally, it, it provided a framework for disputes to be had. So rather than chopping off their heads, we had reform bills great reform bills we had things like the nhs came in whether you like it or not but there was there's always been a slow evolution and i think what i'm worried about is that in the future we won't have that consensus i think we see that now everyone's accusing everyone else of being a traitor or a russian spy or whatever the <laughs> russians rigged it or this, that kind of sense of um, uh, con um convivial respect for, ev for for people of the opposition side you know for mm. example Look, think about all terms, you know, like the honourable gentleman. All these terms are instilled in the English constitution. Um, and I think we're losing that. It's becoming less civil and it's more partisan. And it's no one, we're not all on the same side in terms of what we're, the discussion is no longer, we think 
um, something different to them, but we're all working this in the national interest. Everybody's a traitor now. Everybody's a traitor to, to, to someone else rather than we have a disagreement about the national interest at this time. And I think that's an example of how our class system, the, the attempt to destroy these bonds with egalitarianism is going to have a negative, a, never, a negative effect on us. I, I agree with that. I think it gives a lot of credence to uh, what Peter Hitchens says when he talks about uh, how the Tory party don't even know what they stand for anymore <laughs> or yes, the views yes, that they espouse was it justine greening recently saying that uh employers should go out of their way not to hire people from eton and I mean, oxford somebody, and yeah, i just yeah, i couldn't <laughs> i couldn't believe this i think you're completely i think you're completely right i don't know where i stand on this notion of parliament because I, I sort of like our parliament being very adversarial. I do think it's sad that it's ah, spilt right. out. I do think it's sad that it's spilt out so much more viciously over in the nation. I mean, if you look at how parliament treats each other and even talks about each other, uh, is much more civil than than how how people would speak about each other as, uh, when having political conversations. So I think that's quite sad. But I sort of quite like. Um, you know, I've always been bought into this notion that democracy replaces combat, right? That words, that words beat speech. Yeah. So, so long as you know they don't, you see, like on television, these African parliaments where they're just lump, you know, jumping over the benches to to smack each other. Like that, to me, yes. is a total yes. failure. And I think if we can get right up to that point, but not cross it, that's probably that's probably when we know that that people are standing by values and not just making noises. But I do, mm. I get but your you, underlying you can... point. I do get your underlying, sorry, I just want to say, I do get your underlying point that, I, you know, this whole horrible climate of identitarianism and Marxism and all this rubbish means that people are now not on the same side. I used to respect Ed Miliband. I didn't agree with him on basically everything, but I, yeah. un I genuinely believed, as I do with Vince Cable now, that they they are doing what they genuinely believe to be in the best interest of this nation. Now, I, I wholeheartedly yeah. disagree with them, but... I do believe that, but we are definitely starting to see the Labour Party descend into this sort of, I don't even know what you'd call it, this egalitarian chaos. Yeah, no, I, I, would, I would just quickly say, because I realise I've spoken a lot, but I would say I, I totally agree with you. And I think it's only because we've had those shared values and that system of uh, shared principles and respectability and, and honour, etc. That's it's because of that we've ha we've been able to create an adversarial system of parliamentary democracy. In fact, it's when you don't have those shared values and the 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 policy exchanges, the debates in the House of Commons turn into per turn into personal spites. And the idea that the person's disagreeing me not because they have a honor honourable position. You know, the honourable gentleman has an honourable position that I can respect. It's when it becomes a personal ad hominem of they're a traitor. Yeah. You know, they're a traitor to this country, which is what you do get, as you said, in third world parliaments. And when you have a situation like that, then it becomes very, very embittered, um, embittered and physical. And it, it is very much that's how that's how you degenerate. It's actually by constructing a platform where you can have the open discussion of ideas without being called a heretic that you can actually allow the best ideas and the best policies and open discussion in a, in a liberal democracy to work. And I think we're digressing from that because what PMQs now... PMQs it used to be even ten years ago quite a jolly affair. I found. Oh, I, you know, I remember that. the days of Blair and Cameron. No, but it, it, I mean they 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 too they, cushy. It, 
No, uh, maybe maybe it was too cushy. Okay, but I think nowadays, especially when you see the kind of vitriol you get from the from the le- on from Labour, they literally call everything that you do racist. Or you know, look at the the, the Glenfall Tower, where basically they're saying it's you know effectively the government killed them. You know, it's um, they, they they didn't have any social any responsibility to them. The, the way they talk about these things. It really does feel like they're that they they really consider the conservatives to be kind of rats, the lowest level of vermin. And there's some that go the other way too. But I think there's a general um, civility that has been lost. And I don't know if that's a systemic change that's happened, or it's something just because of the particular circumstances that, that we're in now. But I do think there's been a shift, um, I, and uh, there's a, there's, a, there's a bitterness in the air. I, I think anyway. I think it's an inevitable systemic change. If I'm honest, I think this is again another reason why so many people are really enjoying uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, as he has such a calm and he has such respect for the people that he's talking to. You know, uh, I've only ever seen him get irked when they flat out lie about quotes and things he said, and he shoots them down and corrects them immediately. But I think as the as the state has taken on more and more responsibility you must remember this is something that we've only had since the end of the second world war we're now you know the state is now responsible for people's health it's responsible for their mental and physical health and well-being for their housing uh for their food for their even for their um uh, economic prosperity everything 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 uh, so mm. there is a lot more for the state to fail at so when you know you expect politicians to be passionate um so when you've got this increased burden on the state but we've lost the sort of landed gentry sort of honor bound duty bound aristocracy to sort of set that that moral tone I yes mean, it, i think it, that's it's, a very good point it's, yeah. it's, it's it's not a shock we're descending in the way we are Absolutely. And I think also one of the things missing is a sense of national interest. I think an aristocracy, one of the key roles they can play is they can always enforce the national interest because they are not doing something because of a democratic mandate. They're not doing it because of the the whims of the of the uh, the electorate. They're doing it because they have a responsibility. They have an independent mandate bestowed upon them rather than one that's given to them. Uh, And um, I think uh, that's 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 something that I, I suspect we'll never be able to go back to a system that we had for the three, 400 years, you know, the glorious revolution era of, of an, of an honorable aristocracy that always worked in the national interest. I don't think we'll, we'll probably ever be able to go in that way, back that way. But no. I do think that there's an argument in itself, the concept of aristocracy, as we've been talking about, not a hereditary one, but devising a system which can encapsulate a better sense of values into the hierarchy. Because as we've, as we've explained, a hierarchy is inevitable. So it's about providing the best framework for that hierarchy to thrive. And if we could create a system again, where we encapsulated honorable value values back into, uh, uh, into a group of people that um, could work in the public interest rather than the polit- in their own political interest, I think that would be some, a system that we, would, we, should, we should try and facilitate. Because I don't mm. think... I don't. I don't. I think that there needs to be a counterbalance to the capitalist sense of American democracy that seems to be in every institution we now have. It's either yes. Americanism or it's it's cultural Marxism. And I think there's a real mm. re, that the world is missing a sense of British 
yeah. uh, British um, civility Order. in their constitutions. Mm. And many of these countries have the Westminster system. You know, this is why so many people, um, so many royal families from across the world would send their children and their, and, and their grown-up children, their adults, their future rulers, they would go to England because they would pick up the aristocratic values and, and those, those, that code of honour. Um, so they would take it back to their countries because they knew constitutionally how important it was to be a good ruler. You needed these ideas of civility and gentlemanliness. Um, and I, I think that those, those institutions still exist. It's, it's turning them away from the current value system of, you know, uh, diversity, inclusion, and equality. If we could create a new sense of, of a, new, a, a better, better value system, I think we could create a, a, a much more con, um, con, a society much more conducive to um, treating people respectfully and not dividing people like the current system is. Because the current value system is terrible in every way. It's everything that it's, it, it purports to, to, to not be. Mm-hmm. So it to be, you know. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, if I may conclude just on what we've been discussing here, it sort of sounds like what we've reached is that an aristocracy is sort of inevitable, whether by meritocracy or by the appointed sort of yes way that we we get there. But it's sort of it's sort of like most things. It's not sort of what we do it's sort of how we do it and how we go about it um but it 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 sounds to me like we've all sort of we understand why there is and why there should continue to be an aristocracy um just just in a just in a a free society there will always be one whether we put in legislature around it or not but for one that serves the people and one that serves the UK as it should with the people of the UK at its heart, it sounds like there's a bit of reforming to do just on on, on the House of Lords and how it's appointed. Um, and then it also sounds like there's sort of a, a value that needs to run just along sort of the Lords and the aristocracy just to understand that for them to understand their place and also for sort of, for the common man to understand their place and how it all works but how it works for everybody's shared interests and that is in the country Oh, oh, oh.